Midland Free, my name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Okay, let me uh, fill you in. This is a little secret. If you're, not new, if you're not familiar with church, this is something we like to do once a year, and we get really excited about it because our entire lives revolve around it. And it's basically this, is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of the living God. Somebody asked me this morning, they, say, they said, did you celebrate Easter with your family already? And I was like, not yet. So I'm about to right now. This is when Easter starts. What it is, is we believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave. And so we have this little tradition where we say he is risen. And then the crowd responds in a similar way. And they say he is risen indeed. And so if you're unfamiliar with that, we're going to give you a chance later in today's sermon to go for it. Um, if you're not there yet, that's fine. We can talk afterwards. But we want to basically summarize or explain to you everything that our entire uh, lives and worldview or system of thinking or ways of viewing the world today in a few short minutes. So what I want to do is walk it through like this. We're going to have a structure as simple as we can, we're going to say, number one, what's the big idea? You know, what is it? What do we Christians believe? What are all those crazy church people talking about? Why do they do this thing on Sunday? And especially, why do they get so crazy around the times of Christmas and Easter? What's the big idea? And then after that, we're going to ask the question, so why is it important? Or what are the implications then? Here's what they think. Uh, why is that significant. So we're going to ask these two questions, and then we're going to break them down a little bit more detail. Uh, The first one, the big idea, we're going to move through in four points. And if uh, you're new to church, you can just go to our website and download these. If you're a note taker, feel free to start writing away, but you don't have to memorize or remember everything. We have it online for you. But this is the basic structure of today. We're going to look at the big idea, and I'm just going to Walk, talk it through in, in general terms, in the most simplistic summary fashion I can. And then after we do that, um, I'm going to read it to you because uh, one thing you'll see about us Christians is that uh, we believe, everything we believe comes from Scripture. Even in the text I read today, it'll say, in accordance with the Scriptures. One of the big deals behind being an evangelical or someone who who believes this stuff about Jesus is getting what we believe from the Bible. The Bible is over everything. So I will read that to you, and every Sunday that I'm here, I will actually preach from the Bible. I don't hold up an actual text because my eyes are not so great, and I like that bigger print, so I print it out and put it in my outline. But this is all from the Bible, and you'll see it up on the screen. Then after that, I'll boil it down and say, okay, now what are the three essentials We read this long text. Now, what are three essentials? And within those three essentials, what is the key linchpin on which everything else rises and falls? In other words, if this one thing is true, then we're good. And if it's not, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. So what is the key linchpin there? And then after we walk through that as clearly as we possibly can, we'll come back around to the implications. Why is it so important? You know, so what if it's true and what if it's false? You know, if it's false, yeah, and they're right and we're wrong, so what? And if it's true, 
then what does that mean as well? So let's begin first with a big idea. <clears throat> this is basically um, the way that we who consider ourselves uh, followers of Jesus view the world. Everybody has ways of viewing the world. We have experiences, we interpret them, we think, you know, certain things mean this and other things mean that. And the way we answer the big questions, a lot of that comes from sort of the set of lenses through which you view the world. Why is there pain? Why is there death? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? All the big whys, the what ifs, and stuff like that. This is the way we answer those questions. C.S. Lewis says it like this. It's, it's a great way of explaining what a worldview is. He says, I, see, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun, S-U-N, has risen. Not only because I see it, it makes sense to me, I can verify that it's there, but also I see everything else by it as well. So this is the way in which we view the world. In the beginning, <clears throat> God created the heavens and the earth. So in other words, the earth and all that there is, space, time, matter, the sun, universes, ever-expanding, everything you see, everything you don't see, we believe came from an infinite and eternal God. So there is this being that exists beyond space, beyond time, beyond matter, who has no need for anything. He simply is. He was and is and is to come. He exists out time, outside of time and space and everything we can fathom or imagine. So here's this infinite being, perfect, holy, just, righteous, good in all that he does, and he simply is. And then in our terminology, one day, if you will, even though day has not been created yet, he decides to make the world and all that there is. And this creation that he made is perfect because he is perfect and everything that comes from him is perfect and as a result, his work is perfect. So he makes this perfect world and he begins the dominion or stewardship or rule over the world with this creation he calls humanity. He says that humanity is made in his image, which means basically that you are a mirror which means you are not the same as, but instead your job is to reflect. So God is like this, and you are to be like that, and you are to reflect that back to him. His character, his attributes, his goodness, his love, you are to represent that all throughout the world and rule over this thing that he made as his representatives. You're made in his image. And at this point, Adam and Eve are perfect, the first two human beings, and nothing's ever going to go wrong. It's as good as we can imagine and then some. It's beautiful. There's no need for anything. They have everything they want. They have no pain. They have nothing bad is in the world. It's a great place. But then God warns them and says, look, now evil does exist outside of your world, and it can enter into your world if you so choose and you let it. So the one thing you got to do is make sure to obey my rule, and as long as you do, you're good. Well, what do they do? Inevitably, they <laughs> disobey. And because of their disobedience, just like God promised, sin comes into the world. Sin, that is anything that is contrary to the nature of God. Now, that which is contrary to God is contrary to God. God is good. God is life. God is just. 
So what comes into our world when we introduce something contrary to that? Bad, unjust, death. All the things that are opposite of God now come in. So sin brings with it sickness and death and pain. And basically, we would explain everything that's evil in the world on the fact of this start, that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and as a result, sin came into the world. And with that, it brought all its nasty friends, sickness, death, abuse, injustice, war, pain, heartache, all the stuff you don't want and don't like came with sin. That's what comes with it. For the wages of sin is death. So here is humanity having directly disobeyed God. And God looks at humanity, and he could have one of two responses. One is he could say, all right, I told you. Get what you pay for. Good luck. Enjoy. I'm done. I'm going to go work on this world over here because you messed up yours, and I'm going to play around on this one. Or he could say, well, I'm coming up with some more responses. Why not? He could, for example, say, okay, you guys disobeyed. I said sin is sickness or sin equals death, therefore I'm going to obliterate you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to vaporize your planet and start over again with something better. I don't have to bother with these human things. I've been around forever. (laughs) They've been around for a few minutes. But instead, what he does is very different from that. Because he is good, because he is just, because he is loving, because he is kind, he says, okay, I'm not going to obliterate them, but instead... I myself am going to take on the weight and responsibility of their disobedience and their evil, and I'm going to fix their problem at my expense. That's called grace. Grace is not cheap stuff that Christian refer to that we just look the other way and say, eh, never mind, no big deal, forget about it, oh, yeah, whatever. No, 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 grace looks death and sin and sickness and all the horror and evil and wickedness that you can imagine and then some right in the eye and says, I'll take it. I will take it on myself and I will get rid of it for good. And so God in his grace decides to set up this plan whereby he will redeem his fallen creation. So all of the world is messed up and God doesn't just come the next day and fix it, but instead Over a long period of time, he works out this redemptive system wherein he is bringing the original creation uh, to full and complete restoration. So in other words, that original state that you had in the perfect creation, what we call the Garden of Eden, that will be restored in eternity even better than it was before. So God is working out this salvific process, and initially he gives these hints, and then it builds upon itself, and then there's prophecies, and eventually it crescendos in the climax in the birth, and then the life, and then the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After that, eventually God says, no, no, I'm not done. I'm going to send Jesus back, and when I do, he will finally reign as King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. That is God's big picture or macro redemptive plan. And basically, it has three points. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. It's basically, God is perfect. We're not, but God fixes it. It's basically, God is perfect. We're not, and God's grace fixes it. This is the movement 
of mankind or humanity. This is the way in which God has created the world and what he is doing to fix our mess-ups. So it's this big macro picture. And so when we see evil, we experience injustice. We don't see these isolated events, but instead what we see is the result of sin. And even though sin is causing painful effects right now, we see because Jesus came and will come again that everything that happens in between there is gonna be fixed or taken care of. That's the way Christians view the world. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I'll read for you in just a moment, it's going to do that, and in there you'll hear some neat, neat comparisons like the comparison between Adam and Christ, the first man and the ultimate man, and it's going to show how this whole thing is working itself together for good. So here's 1 Corinthians 15, the big idea of Christianity and how we view the world. Paul says this in verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that's the good news that I preached to you, which you received and which you now stand, and by which this is how you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preach, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For here it is in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That boiled down, here's the message, that Christ died for or on behalf of our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now moving down to verse 14, here's what happens if it's not true, if we're, if we're wrong. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. <laughs> I am wasting my breath. And your faith, what you believe, is in vain. We're even worse, we're found to be misrepresenting God because what we said that God said, what we testified about God was that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if he's not risen from the dead. And if Christ has not been risen, then your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. There's no forgiveness. And those who have fallen asleep, i.e. your relatives who have died in Christ, have already perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if he just makes you a little bit more moral, a little bit better person, and helps you smile on occasion, it is not enough. We of all people are most miserable. But in fact, in fact, the truth of the matter is that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first of those who have fallen asleep or died. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man Jesus has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his first order. Christ is first, the first fruits. Then at his second coming, those who belong to Christ. That's the process. Then he tells us the very end. Here's the last part of the story. Then the end comes, and when he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power and everything that's bad and everything you don't like and everything you hate, then he must reign until he has put all those enemies under his feet. And the last one to be destroyed is death. 
And when all things are subject to him, then even the Son himself, even Jesus, will be subjected to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under God the Son, in order that God may be all in all. That is the whole story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The grand plan of God for all of mankind. So Paul tells us then in, the, in verse 3 that this is of first importance. You know, there's a lot of things you're going to learn in life. But this is the big one, you know. If you don't get anything else, get this. Of first importance, this is the message of absolute superlative beyond anything else import. Here is the message that you absolutely must know, and it's this. The boiled down message of Christianity is that Jesus died, and there's a really important word here. We can show this slide. It says, for or on behalf of. That is the idea that Christians say substitution. He went on the cross for me, not just for him, or not just to set an example, or not just because, you know, it was a really noble thing to do, but actually in my place, that I deserve to die, and Jesus did, so I don't have to. He is my substitute. He is my savior. He died on my behalf. Number one, Jesus died. He died. And number two, he was buried. He wasn't swooning or fainting or tired. He was completely 100% in every way medically dead and gone. He was wrapped up. He was put in the tomb. The tomb was sealed. It's over, done. He's dead. In every way, Jesus died. But... He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Now, you'll note in that slide that I put down, God the Father raised him from the dead. And that's actually kind of a neat point for you, those of you who've been in church for a long time, is that the Bible always speaks of Jesus being raised. I don't know of any places where it says he raised himself. In fact, it was God the Father that came to God the Son and raised him from the dead. God the Father raised God, the Son, from the dead. So here's the boiled down message of Christianity. Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again. That's Christian. That's the fundamental, most bottom line of Christianity. If you believe that, that makes you a Christian. If you don't believe that, you cannot call yourself a follower of Christ. Jesus made incredibly exclusive and clear claims and there is no fudging on this one. This is the one that is black and white and crystal clear. That he's the only begotten son of the living God. That he came to earth, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. That is the message of Christianity. So why did he do that then? I mean, what, what causes Jesus to go through so much suffering? Well, the first, the first and most important answer is that he did it in obedience to his father. God the Father said and God the Son did. He shows his subjection to the will of the Father and the preeminence of the importance of the glory of God by going to the cross. But secondarily, it is for us. And it is for us in this sense. If you imagine yourself, for example, I'm just gonna use Walmart. There's a million illustrations you could use, but this one's pretty generic in general. So let's say you're going into Walmart. You've heard there's a great new Easter deal 
on flat screen TVs. By the way, do you know how much money Christians spend on Easter? I forgot the actual number, but where does somebody know? Someone out there had a hand earlier. Someone was telling me. Anyways, it was a huge figure, way up in the middle. I mean, huge figure. So anyways, I would just like to thank everyone for all the money they're going to give to church this weekend, knowing that, oh, wait, that's not what it's spent on? I don't know. It's spent on something, stuff that will perish and go away, I guess. But here is, let's imagine that you um, walk into Walmart or Meyer or wherever, and you're buying a flat screen TV. Now, when you're walking out with eggs and a gallon of milk, they're probably not going to check your receipt. But you purchase some big fancy box, and you got it in your cart, and you're going out like this, more than likely the greeter at the door is going to say, um, hi, how's it going? I like your TV. Can you, I just match up the you know, receipts? And they'll take a look at it, and they'll make sure the receipt matches, and it'll say paid in full or whatever. And they'll look at your product number, and they let you go out the door. If you do it online, you put your credit card in, and then you expect some sort of transaction confirmation and then you get a receipt and you save it because you're waiting for UPS or FedEx or whoever to send that to your house and if they don't you're holding on to that thing and saying um I have proof here's the confirmation number here's the missing money in my account please give me this product that has been purchased what happens in Christianity is this is God the Father because he is infinite because he is holy because he is just when we offend him, we owe him an infinite debt. Like the price of this offense is bigger than the American deficit. I mean, it is huge. It goes beyond trillions and bazillions and whatever. God is an infinite God, and so one little sin is an infinite offense to him. And so if we go into this situation and we're like, okay, it's time for us to pay our debt. It's time for us to get out of sin and we start paying on it, the banker or God is just going to laugh and say, that's not enough. Transaction declined. Sorry, your credit's not good enough. You know? When, when your card goes through, he's going to say, sorry, it's short. Your balance is just not that high. You cannot pay off an infinite offense. You'll never get there. And so what he does to cover you is he sends Jesus whose account, whose righteousness is infinite, and Jesus spends his blood to purchase you or redeem you out of slavery. And as a result, when you come to the door of heaven, if you will, God says, why should I let you in? You hold up the receipt that says, transaction approved, paid for by Jesus. God the Father says, oh, Transaction accepted. Come on in. That's good enough. Nothing you do is ever going to cover it. You cannot pay off this debt. Your credit is nowhere near good enough. You do not have that kind of credit with God. He is the only one who can pay off your debt. So he sends Jesus to make the permanent, once and for all, eternal sacrifice or payment for sins. And then when Jesus rises from the dead, it is proof, it is transaction complete, it is the receipt that God accepted that payment. Jesus comes out of the grave. If God didn't accept it, he would have said, stay there, it's not good enough, I don't want it. Your sacrifice fails. Try some other means or way. But instead, God sees his son sacrificed and says, yeah, 
that'll work. And so he goes to the grave and pulls him out and says, I agree. I accept transaction complete, sin forgiven. That is why our system of Christianity hangs or falls in the balance with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely essential to everything we believe. Now, you should know, Christian, I'm talking to you as Christians right now, and I'm sure if you've been around for any length of time, someone's probably had this conversation with you, that, that I would say the devil, via whatever means he can, is going to try to undermine that belief because he knows if our system lives or dies, hangs or falls on this one crucial hinge that Jesus has risen from the dead, and he can knock that out, then the whole deck of cards comes down. If Jesus isn't risen, we are miserable, we are lost, our transactions declined, we're in big trouble. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, that's a different story. So what happens is if you talk to someone who is hostile or resistant or even skeptical or even unaware of the cross, one of the things that they will say is, look, <laughs> all right, you're a really nice person. I love chatting with you, and I, we get along really well. We agree about this, we agree about this, we agree about that, but I am just not there yet when it comes to this whole resurrection thing. I mean, we can look at history, and we can talk about the existence of Jesus, and I will admit that he's a historical figure. I see Pliny, and I see Tacitus, and I see Josephus, and I say, yeah, all of these non-Christian writers who never admit that he's God do admit that he exists. So I'll give you that. I will say historically, it's verifiably fact that Jesus exists. I'll even go so far as to say that he died on the cross. We know it was a common method of Roman execution, and I'm good with that. But where I stop is at that whole resurrection thing. I mean, don't you understand? Look, don't you Christians understand? Hear me, Christians. Don't you understand that Easter is a completely pagan holiday? It is. And I'm just stepping outside of this dialogue for a minute, and I can say as a Christian, I totally admit that. It's a pagan holiday. I mean, look at all the symbolism involved there. For example, it comes, Easter comes from an original word, which is a uh, pagan goddess, Oester. And this pagan goddess, supposedly, at the spring equinox, the full moon, right after that, brings fertility and life and new growth to the world. You owe your world's existence, its growth, its new life to this pagan goddess. And so all the pagans would celebrate her. Moreover, they would symbolize that by a beautiful young maiden carrying a basket full of eggs, the symbol of fertility. And she would come and she would deliver these eggs. And then after she delivers these eggs, she would be accompanied by a rabbit, which is also very, very fertile. And now you get the Easter bunny. And you follow this through and you say, you know what? If you Christians really knew the historical roots of this holiday, you would understand that it all goes back to that, and it's really just a synchronization or commingling of one religion and another, and it kind of all got boiled down into this. Now we have Easter bunnies and Easter lilies and Jesus and tombs, and it's really cute, and it's culturally significant. I'll give you that. I'm not downing your, you know, your belief system or anything. It, it, it's culturally significant. But it's really not that much different than Harry Potter or Grimm's fairy tales or Aesop's fables or whatever. 
I mean, look, you tell your three-year-old, Jesus is alive, and you also tell your three-year-old, here comes the Easter Bunny. Aren't you Christians just those people who believe in the Easter Bunny and Jesus? What's the difference? If you really knew your historical roots, you'd understand that they're the same. Come on, guys, wake up. Come to the real world. Join the scientific enlightenment and say, look, Easter, Jesus, bunnies, eggs, whatever. We understand the rotation of the sun and the way the planet works, and we don't need any of that. Come on. Well, I hope you don't tell your kids the Easter bunny is real. So what are they going to think when they grow up and for your whole life you've been telling them the same thing? Jesus is real, the Easter bunny is real. Which one is it? Here's the deal. I have a sister-in-law who is from Cambodia. And I asked her her permission to share this, and she's totally on board because she's a believer. And um, it's kind of an interesting thing because she's born in a very different country in a very different way. She's born in a field to her mother who had no hospital or medical services and has no birth certificate whatsoever. And so when it comes to her birthday, what they do is this. They say, well, you know, going to the doctor, we can take the best scientific evidence we have and come to a pretty good um, estimation of when you were born based on all this stuff that I don't understand. And we will assign to you this birthday. And so now as an American citizen, that's what will go on your certificate and that's what will go on your driver's license. But as to the actual day, we're not really sure if it was right here or right here or right here, but we can get pretty close. And then you know what happens every year? Guess what we do? We celebrate her birthday a lot because we love her and we like her and we think she's really cool. And so we give her gifts and we have candles and we have a cake. Now, where did that cake come from? Is it a pagan cake? Perhaps it was a sun god who taught us to light candles. Or maybe those offerings were just like what we give the Hindu deities. I don't care. The cake tastes good. It's going down the hatch. Easter eggs, meat sacrificed to idols, cakes, birthday candles, whatever. It doesn't change the fact that she exists. It doesn't change the fact that I know her. It doesn't change the fact that she's alive and come this time every year, we're going to celebrate her. Guess what? For me, Easter's kind of the same way. I'll give you the whole pagan goddess thing. I'll give you the fact that we don't know the exact day. I will give you all this stuff, but I can say for a fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and every time this year, I'm going to celebrate that. If that's not true, man, my life is a waste. It really is. People don't want to hear that, but uh, the reality is I'm in a pulpit, and I work for a church. What am I doing if this is false? I am a liar. I'm getting up here every single Sunday morning and lying to you. What a waste. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God. There's a slide on this one if we need it. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. 1 Corinthians 15, and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if Christ 
We only hope in this life. We of all people are most miserable. There's all kinds of incredible implications about the reality of Jesus' resurrection, but for me, it's all a wash if it's not true. It's a complete waste of time. Now, I've just given you a sort of experiential or first-person narrative as to my own view, but you also need to know that is not the essential or your, your subjective experience is not the essential judgment of whether or not Christ arose. The fact that Christ arose is a fact that we will all be judged upon. It is objective rather than subjective. And what's funny is this culture that we live in, speaking of cultural capitulation and stuff, we live in a postmodern culture, which means this, we're all based on some personal narrative. Hey, this is my story, that's your story, that's really cool, that's good for you. I'm glad that you celebrate that every year. Good for you. I'm going to do it different. That's your thing. This is my thing. We all have our own story. We're not going to judge one another, whatever. But what the Bible says, in accordance with the Scripture, is this is a fact that will judge all of us. Look at the facts. The tomb was empty. Nobody, here's, there's a slide on that, I believe. The tomb was empty. Nobody denies that. Nobody denies the fact that the tomb was empty. Even the, even the Roman authorities who crucified him, even the Jewish high priest and council who wanted to make this thing go away, they all agree that the tomb was empty. Nobody disagrees on that. Everybody knows that the tomb was empty. So what's the only possible explanation? Well, the people who deny it say, well, somebody stole his body or he swooned or he walked out or whatever. But that just doesn't hold up because, look, the guards lied. Everybody knows the guards lied. What do they say? Someone come and stole the body while we were asleep. How did you know? You were asleep. That's like one of my little boys saying, yeah, I was asleep, and in the night my brother came out and stole my favorite Lego piece. <laughs> Oh, really? He did? Yes. Well, where were you last playing with it? In the garage. Why don't we go out to the garage for a minute and see what we find? <laughs> oh, there's my Lego piece. He must have put it there. <laughs> he did that because he's evil. What? Come on. The guards lied. Everybody knows they lied. If they say we're asleep, they can't say we saw him take the body. Next, you have independently verifiable eyewitness accounts. All these different people from different phases in life are completely saying the same thing without ever even talk to each other. And beyond that, these eyewitnesses are some of the most unlikely sources possible. If this were a construed story, they would go for authoritative sources, but instead they go to these fishermen and women whose testimonies won't even stand up in court, and they put them there, and the Bible says, hey, look, guess who were the first witnesses? The last people you'd ever expect. Josephus, the same guy who mentions Jesus, also says that women's testimony was not dependable in court because he was so... Um, sexist that he wouldn't even trust a woman. Yet the Bible, who raises the value of women, says the first people we're going to introduce Jesus through are women. You wouldn't do this if you're trying to come up with some false story. You got independently verifiable witnesses. Moreover, people were tortured unto death. Look, folks, there's a lot of things that um, <laughs> I'm willing to let you have your way about, right? Like, as a pastor, 
you know, if you want to change these seats to, you know, blue-green instead of blue or whatever color they are. My wife says I'm colorblind, by the way. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I really don't. You know, there's a lot of things I'm not going to argue about. There's only a few things I die for, and there's maybe one or two that God willing, un only under the power of the miraculous Holy Spirit that I'd be willing to be tortured for. And this is one of them. When someone puts a gun to the head, this is a life or death issue. And they say, did Jesus rise from the dead? You have to say yes. There's no getting around that. And these people went a lot further than getting, you know, their heads cut off. They were tortured and tortured and tortured and tortured. And not just the original disciples. This long chain of history of, of martyrdom and persecution goes all the way from the first disciple to today. There are people all over the world being imprisoned and tortured for their faith. All the time. Even now. Here are Christians willing to die for this. Are they really that crazy? Are they really that dumb that they would sacrifice their children? No way. We really believe it. Otherwise, we would not go to this length. Finally, there's historically accurate and verifiable records. You can compare the different sources and dating and yada yada, and it all comes out right. At the end of the day, this is a fact, and there's really no getting around it. We believe it, we experience it, but it's also a fact. So here we are, the four things then. The big idea explained, the big idea read, the big idea boiled down, and now the linchpin of the big idea that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Really, either he is or he isn't. And if he is, then we're on the winning team and everything's okay. And if he isn't, then we're completely and totally hooped. This whole thing is a wash. And I think you probably already know which side of the struggle I'm landing on. When I look at this whole thing, I say there's only one possible explanation and answer. That Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten, Son of the living God, crucified, risen, and coming again. Do you believe this? Let's try this one more time. And I only want you to say it if you mean it, because if you don't mean it, don't say it. Don't even pretend. You think about it, you come talk to me, you read about it, you pray about it, you do whatever you have to do. But I ask this question, I mean it, and I hope that when you reply, you do as well. The resurrection, here comes, I'm going to build it and I'm going to ask it. The resurrection, to me, it proves that truth is stronger than falsehood, that good is greater than evil, that love is stronger than hatred and life is stronger than death. And God wins in the end. If you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For as through one man death enters into the world, so through the other life and peace. Over and against all of his enemies, God accomplishes his original creative purposes by sending his only begotten son to die on the cross, be buried, be resurrected, and come again. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? He is risen.
Father, we thank you for your incredible and matchless grace to us. There is nothing or no one like you. Lord, you're the reason we sing. You're the reasons we give. You're the reasons we live. You forgive our sins. You fix our fallen brokenness. You promise hope for the future. And there would absolutely be nothing at all, no life, no hope, no joy, no peace, no rest, were it not for you. And so, Lord, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you, and we ask that you would come in mighty and powerful ways to show us your victory, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.